21 minutes to 4 o'clock, and hello, Rebecca Davis. Hello, John. How are you? I am all the better for hearing your dulcet, mellifluous tones. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, let me just put on my Downton Abbey clothes so I can talk to you. Uh, You've had a rough time looking after a sick wife and a sick baby. I have, John. Thank you for your concern. But I have nonetheless been focused as ever on, um, on. I haven't been. Fo- I don't know what I'm saying. Even I haven't been focused on anything except that. What am I saying? But I am back at work today, actually. Ah, I'm so maternity leave, maternity leave is over. It is, and uh, that is a bit of a shock to the system. But we must press on. We must indeed. Um, we we've just been talking about alcohol and um, it's dominating quite a few conversations at the moment, either a, a joyful expectation of being able to buy again or um, a rather sad anticipation of the damage it is going to ensue when we are allowed to buy again. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't necessarily feel either of those things, but what I do feel is that what has happened actually, and you know, so much is happening at the moment that it's hard to to take a step back. But actually, we've had this really extraordinary experiment in South Africa, something that I don't think any non-Muslim country has done since Prohibition, and that is a kind of a stopping of the selling of alcohol for a limited period and the ability from that to judge the effects. I mean, that is a really extraordinary thing, John, and we really should think about that because I can't think of another country that is able to look at that data and make findings accordingly. And of course, the most obvious one is about health. And the point is that now we know, we can no longer pretend not to know. I mean, we all, I think, sort of vaguely assumed that alcohol was clogging up the health system in some ways. But I think for many of us, it was truly shocking to apprehend just how direct the link between alcohol sales and hospital admissions on weekends, for instance, is. I mean, there's just no disputing it. I've seen some attempts to dispute it, but I mean, I think anyone... The major major point of dispute is that we still don't know, we're not able to disaggregate the impact of the uh, curfew the restriction on movement against the um, the sale, the, the, the banning of the sale of alcohol. But from the admissions to hospital, surely, it is clear in terms of the fact that it's, there's a difference in people being admitted to hospital and they're not drunk and nothing has happened to them because they're not out at night. Look, I'm, I'm not. I'm not arguing with you. I really am. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I, I've. It's always been a, a sort of Janus part of my my view on this that it's it's a product that I enjoy and I think I enjoy responsibly, although that was not always the case. But I, I've always been aware of its very very dark side, not just here in South Africa, although it does seem to be particularly severe here in South Africa. It is severe, although not as severe as also in Africa. Even we know Nigeria is ahead of us. But we now have the evidence that we need. And the question is, what are we going to do with that evidence? Now there are reports that the alcohol industry is bargaining with government, that it's offering to pay for protective equipment, that it's offering to pay for various things in order to have the ban lifted. And I think the question should be, well, what are you going to pay for forever going forward? Now that we know this about you, now that there is this greater social awareness. I was just researching, John, you know, back in 2014, that's six years ago, a research paper estimated that the cost to South Africa of alcohol 
And this is in terms not just of healthcare, but also traffic accidents and social and welfare costs, premature mortality, etc., as being almost 3 billion rand a year. I have to assume it's substantially higher now. And that is a lot. That is, you know, a substantial portion of our GDP. It seems to me going forward that we have to find a way of ensuring that the alcohol industry plays a more direct role in subsidizing some of these costs or alternatively in heavily restricting the sale and consumption of alcohol, one of the two. And neither, of course, will make people happy. The first will enrage the alcohol industry and the second as well. And the second will also enrage individual consumers. But, you know, these these methods are not... They're not. They wouldn't be unique to South Africa, and they're also not unique to countries which are totalitarian. In, in Scandinavian countries, which are often held up as kind of bastions of social freedom in some ways, the government has a monopoly on liquor sales. You can only buy liquor from very specifically designated outlets, and liquor is incredibly expensive. And research also shows that the only thing that really does help to limit alcohol consumption, unfortunately, is government regulation. So is it time to look at going forward, regulating the days or the hours that alcohol can be sold? Is it time to look at things like complete ban on price promotions on alcohol? Is it time to look at regulating drinking context? In some countries, for instance, you can serve alcohol only in plastic containers in order to prevent the potential injuries from glass or violence from glass. It just seems to me that this is the moment, if ever there was one, where we have to reappraise as a society our relationship with alcohol and who's paying for the damaging effects. If not now, then when? Yeah, and I really, really hope. I mean, we we spend so much time hoping that the way the pandemic is focusing our minds on inequality and and this and that, that we, we use the opportunity to make the changes to reduce, if not eradicate the problem, but um, I remain not as hopeful as I would like to be. Before we move on to the next one, Martin in Musenberg has sent me this WhatsApp. Please tell Rebecca she is a cracking good webinar host, and I really hope to see more of her on the Maverick webinars, more strength to her arm. I presume Martin was watching you in conversation with Mark Gavisser. I assume so too. I didn't actually use my arm much, but thank you for the strength to it. I can use it for other things, but... Um, you're, you're going to bring up something which is, thankfully, you are certain, not quite as controversial as last week's great moving forward debate. I think so. Although I almost blundered into yet another one this week when my wife said to me, let's not do this next Monday. <laughs> John, here we go. And I said, what do you mean by next Monday? This was yesterday. It turned out that she meant the Monday after next Monday. She meant Monday the 24th, whereas I'm with you, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm As with ever, you. John. Um, next Monday is Monday the 17th, because there is no Monday between now and the 17th, so it has to be. That's next. right. Yes. But uh, there okay. is an inconsistency in my analysis, because if I was to say to you, John, would you like to hang out next weekend, today? I don't mean the weekend coming up in two days' time. I definitely do mean the one next week because if you meant the one coming up you would say this weekend this weekend john as always of of one mind anywho time is passing very very strangely in 2020 i mean if you consider that in the last week alone beirut exploded there was a massive oil spill Mauritius, a volcano erupted in indonesia there just seems to be this extraordinary glut of events things happening in 2020 and this almost certainly isn't actually the case by the way 
it's more likely that there's more of us at home scanning the news obsessively, etc. So we're more struck by catastrophic things happening in quick succession. And that, in fact, maybe there aren't many, any more events than any normal year. Again, it seems crazy, John, if you consider that that whole fracas about Harry and Meghan leaving the royal family, that was this year, as was actual Brexit. I mean, the things we used to care about. The Pentagon released footage of UFOs in April. Did you know that? How did we miss this, John? People barely registered it because it actually was the same day that Donald Trump suggested people drink bleach to protect themselves from coronavirus. So things are happening. And when I, when I look at this sequence of events, it actually gives me a great deal of respect for the work of historians. I mean, I've always had it. But when you think about the job of historians, which is to, to put a, an, a year's worth of events into some kind of focus and some kind of priority, I mean, my goodness, the mind boggles. Anyway, all this is happening in what one writer suggested is less a 2020 timeline as a time soup. And I totally understand what she means, because we're in this curious situation, particularly in terms of lockdown and quarantine, where it seems unclear whether time is moving really, really fast or really, really slowly. What is your take on that, John? Is it your sense that things are quick or slow at the moment? I don't think I have a consistent sense of that, Rebecca. I think there are times when it it seems to be moving and and as I mean, I think it's generally agreed that as one gets older, time moves more rapidly, and there are scientific explanations for that, which for the life of me, I can't remember or recall. I'll tell you, the, the scientific rationale is that you're having fewer and fewer novel experiences at every yeah. year, okay. and it's novel experiences that make life slow down. So there's a okay. terrifying gap that by the time you're 30 or something, your life is already something like two-thirds over in terms of experiential time. But I mean, but by that explanation, we're having, well, are we having a lot of novel experiences? Are we having the same no longer novel experience day after day after day after day, the groundhog phenomenon? Because there are times when I think, where's the time gone? And there are other days when I think, when is tomorrow going to come? So I don't think I have a consistent approach. No, I think that's right. So for a start, time is likely to move very, very fast when the world shrinks, as it has for many of us, when we're not leaving our house as much. We don't, we're not really doing anything memorable every day. So there's every reason why, time, why the days would sort of just speed by. But the experience of lockdown itself is novel, right? Because none of us have experienced this before. Every time you go to the shop and you see people wearing masks, there's this moment where you're like, what on earth is happening to the world? So from that sense, time might be moving slowly also because they're having to make many unexpected decisions every day you know if, which mask am i going to take is it safe for me to touch this and that is also a way of of slowing down time i think what's disorienting john is the realization that it's august that to me is the bigger picture because there's also this sense that nothing has been accomplished this year we haven't yeah. done anything you know, yeah. those plans have gone unrealized and we can't make new plans because everything is uncertain. The key to all this, by the way, apparently is gardening, because gardening operates on a scale of time which is completely divorced from our human affairs. And to plant something and watch it grow will apparently bring you a level of calm and tranquility that is what we all need. And there are certain plants that you can plant that will give you a greater <laughs> sense of tranquility. Good. And according to legislation about to come before Parliament, you're going to have 2.4 kilograms of that plant in your home. Um, great whack. Goodness. It's a large whack. Um, what is Miles's favorite children's song? 
say because it's all dependent on my renditions. I perform them for him. I've had good results from a number. So the, the issue is this, John. First of all, half the songs that I used to listen to when I was a child three decades ago were performed by people who are now in jail for paedophilia. I'm thinking of the likes of the Australian Rolf Harris, for instance. But this is my other issue, that I find children's songs listened to from an adult perspective to be extremely strange, John. And in particular, I'd like to direct you to Teddy Bear's Picnic. I assume you are familiar with that song. I am. I sincerely hope you're not going to ask me to sing it, because that would not be a good experience for listeners. All right. Teddy Bear's Picnic was written in 1932. It's extensively researched the song. And what it describes is an ostensibly charming scene, that if you were to creep into this place in the woods, you might find all the baby teddy bears having a picnic. But at the same time, it is deeply ominous, John. If you go down to the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. You'd better go in disguise. I mean, that is quite a statement. It says later, you'd better not go alone. It's safer to stay at home. What exactly are these bears going to do to you? Because then the counter chorus is at six o'clock, their mummies and daddies will take them home to bed because they're tired little teddy bears. Nothing could be sweeter. And yet it seems, by the same token, that were you to arrive there by yourself without a full body disguise, they might tear you limb from limb. What is going on with these bears, John? It blows my mind. Another thing is a number of songs which really beg more questions than they answer. And one of them is Three Blind Mice. I hadn't listened to Three Blind Mice properly, perhaps ever. Three Blind Mice starts with the mice being blind. They are already blind. And then all that happens to them is that they run around the house and the butcher's wife chops off their tails. That is it. It seems to me we are missing vast swathes of context on either side, John. Why are all the mice blind simultaneously? And why, in God's name, is the butcher's wife out for them in this particular way? Another thing I didn't know, I'm getting quite close to the end now, don't worry. <laughs> twinkle, twinkle, little star, John. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Most of us only know one verse, I would suggest. There are about 17 other verses to that song, giving the whole CV of the star. How it's offered a beacon for travelers for years and years. Nobody needs that much information on the star. But this all brings me to a serious point, which is, I don't want to play some of these dreary Anglo-centric songs to my son. Ride a cock horse to Banbury Cross. What does that mean, John? Where are these places? The muffin man who lives on Drury Lane. It feels incredibly dislocated from anything relevant to our experience. So I really would like to know from your listeners or from you, what are the South African equivalents? Are there good South African children's songs which are not problematic in some racial way? And if so, what are they? I will pass on any suggestions which come our way. Thank you very, very much indeed to Rebecca Davis, who has eviscerated traditional Anglo-Saxon children's songs for us.